Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Today, we are highlighting a new Aspen consensus statement that will be published in the June 2022 issue of NCP entitled, Safe Care Transitions for Patients Receiving Parenteral Nutrition. Joining me today are two of the co-authors, Stephen Adams and Dr. Joe Bolotta. Stephen Adams is the pharmacist and clinical coordinator for the Geisinger Home Infusion Services in Danville, Pennsylvania. Joseph Bolotta is a clinical nutrition pharmacy specialist and independent consultant in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So thank you, Steve and Joe, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Jeanette. So before we start a discussion, I'd like to ask our guests if they have any disclosures on this topic that they'd like to share. Steve, do you have any disclosures? No, I don't have any disclosures. Joe, do you have any disclosures? No disclosures for this topic. Thank you. So Joe, I'm going to start with you because as we kind of start this topic, can you describe for our listeners what prompted the development of the statement and and why did we need a transition of care consensus specifically for parenteral nutrition? Well, first, uh, let me say that that Steve Adams here did a wonderful job of of leading a talented uh, work group within Aspen's Parenteral Nutrition Safety Committee. And as it has for a number of years, the the PN Safety Committee um, identifies risks and gaps in in current practices and then develops some best practice guidances to help organizations and individual practitioners. And it turned out that care transitions um, is a point in the uh, PN use process uh, model that we hadn't addressed yet. We'd certainly talked about it, but hadn't addressed it fully. In this critical step that transitions um, in care probably is underappreciated by many for its potential risk um, to the patient when when it's poorly coordinated or if there's insufficient communication or or not enough uh, standardization in the process. So here what we did is we identified some risk-prone processes um, in the care transitions between healthcare settings for patients receiving parental nutrition and tried to offer the best practice recommendations to help you know, mitigate risks. So that's kind of the background as to how we got to this point. So Joe, if you could continue, can you kind of tell us who was involved in developing the statement and kind of what the process was? And then also what settings does this apply to? Or maybe are there any settings that this transition statement would not apply to? I can let Steve add as well, but um, certainly it was members of the, the PN Safety Committee uh, that were selected and put together in, in a work group and held discussions that initially actually focused, interestingly enough, on, on transitions between hospital and home, which most people are, are familiar with. But the same process obviously applies to um, all care transitions, patients requiring parental nutrition, you know, whether somebody's going hospital to home, home back to the hospital, to an LTAC, to a um, skilled nursing facility, et cetera. But uh, Steve can certainly. Uh, add more as to all the, the, the wonderful folks that were, were part of this group. Yeah, we, we had a, a really great uh, experienced group of people. Reed Nishikawa has been involved in providing parental nutrition in the home for quite a few years. Kathleen Gura, who has a lot of experience in preparing folks and families for that. And then uh, the rest of the group are all very, a lot of these people have experience in home infusion or or in getting people prepared, Todd Canada, uh, David Serres, uh, Debbie Kovacek, uh, 
Angel McGuire. So uh, we had a very uh, skilled group and experienced group of folks that were involved in this. So. Thanks. So Steve, I thought that the meat of the paper was really talking about these transitions and the phases of transitions for parental nutrition. So can you kind of highlight what those main phases are and those key events within those phases? Sure. You know, I, I want to say, you know, in, in reference to the process, as Joe was talking about it, you know, when we initially got together and started looking at this stuff, we thought, well, let's do a checklist. And, you know, we ended up with 15 pages and it just occurred to us, wow, you know, this is a lot of stuff. There's a lot of information. And I think at that point, we realized that there's a lot of guidelines and, and material out there that can help us in those aspects. So that's why we looked at the transition process itself, rather than going into the nitty gritty details. So, but the one thing that is common across all of these different phases is the idea of communication. And uh, hopefully this is emphasized enough in the paper, but you know, from my point of view, at least, I think the patient, the caregiver, family, they have to be in the middle of all this. So we looked at this and said, well, what are the, the key points where we can have a problem where something might be dropped or there might be a, an omission? And we came up with these series of steps. And the first step being, uh, and probably the most important part is identifying the, the uh, patient's early in the process. And uh, that allows you time to have everything set up, get all the uh, preparation in order, and uh, start the whole process. And, and uh, you know, I'm sure there's folks out there that are working in this field that, you know, you have patients that are referred to you at the last moment, and it's, it's nuts, you know, trying to get all this information together. So, you know, identifying the patient early uh, is, is an important thing. And uh, the next step would be performing an assessment. And, and that's where you look at the whole situation in preparation for transferring that patient. So, you know, you have to evaluate the patient's status. Uh, is it appropriate for this patient to be discharged at the time? And probably one of the most important things, and this is again, you know, involving the patient, having the patient understand this is what's going on and getting them prepared, assessing them for their skills and their competency to do this. So that, you know, there's been situations where I've had patients go home and they say, I didn't know I'd have to do all this stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of things there that you have to look at. You know, are there barriers to the to folks being able to do this? Can they, uh, do they have vision impairment? They can't read labels. Do they have physical impairments where they can't manipulate various parts of the process of, of spiking the bag and adding additives and stuff like that. So that's very important. So if you know the patient is capable of doing this, that's going to contribute to the success of the whole process. Uh, and then the, the next step from there would be identifying the receiving organization. In other words, who is going to take care of this patient once they're transitioned to their new site of care? So that could be the home infusion company, the, the home health care, and also, you know, of course, making sure they have the care they need, the, the financial support, and communicating all these costs. And sometimes identifying the organization can be complicated by uh, if the patient has a preferred provider. So you may not have a choice because the patient has to know if you don't go to the provider that your insurance is preference for, uh, your cost could be higher. So once we have that 
receiver organization identified. It's important to identify providers in each of these organizations that are going to be managing the, the patient's care. So that, that again, is a, a communication issue so that you know who to speak with, who received the information, who's going to be responsible for the patient's care. And, uh, you know, across both of these things as regards to identifying the organization and the individuals, uh, we also talked about competency, too, because that's an important thing. Uh, you want to make sure that there are individuals in these organizations that have the experience, the training, certification, and that's one of the things we recommended. You probably should have one individual in the organization that is certified, whether it's a pharmacist certified nutrition support pharmacy, a nurse or a dietitian that has certification, so that you know you have people that are confident to take care of the patient once they're in the home. The next step we talked about is developing and communicating a care plan. And again, that's important, you know, People that are going home on parental nutrition, a lot of these folks, it's a change in their life, really big change in their life because eating is a social thing. It's something that you sit down with your family. When you're told that you're not going to eat anymore, that can be a pretty you know, heavy thing to consider. So that's why I think not only the specific goals as far as nutrition that we have for that patient, but including the patient say, what are your goals? In this, you know, I was, I think one of the greatest things that Aspen has done in the past few years, they've had, I don't know, the, we call them parental nutrition consumers, individuals that will uh, come to the clinical meeting and then talk to us about their experience being on home a parental nutrition. And I think it was two years ago, there was a couple of young women that were speaking, uh, very intelligent. And the one thing that struck me is both these individuals had been on parental nutrition since they were very young, and they both expressed the fact that it was quite a while in the process until someone ever spoke to them about their goals. And I was like, whoa, you know, uh, that, that's something I think that is important, that the, the patients have a chance to look at what are their goals and what do they see going forward with their life with this. And it also gives them a little bit of investment in the whole process. They know they're involved in it. And, uh, you know, a lot of what happens with not being able to eat and, and changing to this type of provision of nutrition, you lose a lot of control. So this gives them a little bit of input and uh, involvement in the situation. So, But the care plan, that has to be clear and disseminated all the folks involved. So is this a short-term situation? Is this a patient maybe with short bowel that's going to be on parental nutrition for life? And then understanding all of the aspects of care, the parental nutrition order, the uh, monitoring and, and such that's going to go on, any kind of uh, associated orders they may have, and, you know, because now we have patients that are coming out with parental nutrition, maybe antibiotics. In some situations, patients may have uh, pain therapy at the same time. So hydration, all these things have to be communicated and very clear. And then the final aspect is implementing that care making sure that, you know, we've addressed all the aspects of the care for the patient, uh, venous access device, uh, cycling the, the parental nutrition, if that's appropriate for that patient, uh, accounting for any patient limitations or barriers that we identified earlier in the process. Also, helping patients who have to travel in this process, too, because you may have patients that are in a hospital or discharged that may be going maybe to another state. So uh, all those things have to be accounted for. 
Well, one of the things that I, I heard you say, and this kind of summarizes what was said earlier, that communication is so important. Communication between the professionals, between the facilities, and communication with the patient and back and forth. And that's kind of seems to be, again, that kind of clear path of what needs to happen during all those phases. One of the other things that I noticed that I thought was kind of interesting is that in this paper, you have a separate recommendation section for the pediatric population. Why did the group feel like that was needed to have those separate notes for the pediatric population? Well, uh, I think we're all aware of special needs of pediatric patients, and there, there's specific things that may come into play. For example, we have to make sure that a pediatric patient, if they're being discharged, do they have to be on the TPN when they're discharged, or can they tolerate being off for the amount of time they are in when they're transporting from the hospital setting to home? The other thing is home health agencies, and what I mentioned before about competencies, uh, one of the things we pointed out is that there have been reports of delays in being able to discharge pediatric patients because they can't find a home health agency that has staff that are competent and caring for pediatric patients with lines uh, and, and the, whole, the whole process for the parental nutrition. And then with adult patients, we train the patients to do this on their own. Of course, that's not possible with young pediatric patients. I mean, there's older folk, older, older kids that maybe can do this themselves, but pediatric patients are going to rely on, on their family, their parents, relatives, caregivers to provide that care too. So that plays into the situation. And I know in Kathy Gore's institution, they have, it might be five days, seven days, they have an extended education process where they can bring the folks in, they learn about all the elements and just to learn what IV access is, what the pump is, all this, and then they get hands-on experience so uh, that we can be assured that they're, they're going to be capable of doing this in the home when they get home. Another issue is if you have a child that is in a, school age, you, you may have to contact the nurse at the school and work things out with them. And I believe that there are some, I think Aspen maybe even have some recommendations for information to give to a school nurse to help them in managing a patient that may be going to school and dealing with the administration of parental nutrition at the same time. So, uh, and then uh, again, the competency comes into play, you know, are you going to discharge this patient to a, a home infusion company that has experience in taking care of pediatric patients? So they're all very important issues to consider. That's why we thought it's important to, to separate those things out and give specific information regarding that population. So there's a lot of information in this consensus statement. But to our listeners today, what can they take away from this statement and how can they apply it in their clinical settings? My intuition would be they could look at our recommendations, look at these different steps in the process and identify where there may be uh, holes in their process, where there may be deficiencies in what they're doing. Maybe look at where they've had issues in the past and identify those and plug that into what we have evaluated here. And that's where the checklist could come into play, too. As I said before, we had a 15-page checklist initially. And when we looked at other literature recommending checklists, uh, a lot of the authors recommended specifying their issues in that checklist. So identify the barriers, the deficiencies in your process, and put them into the checklist so you make sure they're taken care of. So if you have a problem getting home health agencies, maybe that's something you want on the checklist. If you have problems getting orders for the parental nutrition, 
et cetera. So uh, this is something that folks can look at their practice to see how, how does ours fit in and that, where do we have issues and problems and what can we do to use these processes to help improve it? I wanna refer our readers to figure two of the paper. This is the checklist that Steve's been talking about. It's the safe transition parental nutrition checklist. And I do find that this is probably very applicable and helpful in a clinical situation. So we have these guidelines and this consensus statement. What would we consider a successful outcome if we were to follow these consensus guidelines? Well, I, I would hope that uh, by following these guidelines, we could help to prevent readmissions uh, for patients, having an organized monitoring process for this patient, these patients, uh, hopefully would be more efficient with uh, lab orders and uh, avoiding duplication of orders for patients. I think that the biggest issue is what's the patient's experience with this? We want to make this a, an easier process for the patient, and that's where the outcomes come into play. The uh, National Transitions of Care Coalition, something I came across as we're looking at more of the, the transition aspects, uh, they recommend doing outcomes that are paired outcomes of the sending and receiving organization. So by looking at that, both groups can look at and see, you know, did we do the job right here? What can we do to improve it? Hopefully just improve the overall process to make it smooth for the patient and make sure that we have all the information out that, that we need for these patients. You know, it, it, especially things, simple things like making sure the home health agency has information on the line. And if it's a pick line, when, when was it placed, the internal, external length, identifying the group, the physician or the practice that's going to be following the patient. So if you have issues, uh, you know who to contact, because that can be a problem. I mean, I, I work with the Geisinger. We have a nutrition support service, so it's very clear uh, where we go and, and who to communicate with. But I've encountered institutions that don't have nutrition support. And, and when I call back to follow up on the patient and I call, say, surgery, they say, oh, no, nephrology is following the patient. And so you end up running around. So it's hopefully it's something that's going to improve the whole experience for everyone, improve communications all across the board, so that not only the, the folks on the receiving end, but the practice that discharge the patient, they have information coming back to them too. Because that's one of the things I hear from at least our providers that sometimes they don't get communication, they can't get information on patient labs, how the patient is doing. So uh, again, it's that communication issue is very important. So hopefully that's improved too. And I think it just showed, as Joe said before, that transitions of care for any type of patient, whether it's for parental nutrition or other aspects, other reasons they're being discharged, that there's a lot being missed there that we could probably pay attention to to improve those transitions. So before we close, I'd like to ask you both if you have any additional comments that you want to share with our listeners. Steve, do you have any additional closing comments? Well, like I said, I, I think I mentioned earlier, hopefully, you know, we've stressed enough the importance of putting the patient, caregivers, family at the center of all this. So uh, they feel like they have a say in what's going on, they understand what's going on, and uh, feel comfortable with the whole process. Yeah, I think that's always important, patient-centered care. Yeah. Joe, do you have any other comments you'd like to share? Well, I'd say given that over half of med errors in general um, occur during transitions in care, I would urge the listeners that if, if you're sending or accepting patients receiving parental nutrition to or from another setting, you really owe it to them 
to read this document and try to apply the guidance. Well, I want to thank Steve and Joe for sharing your expertise with our listeners. And I invite our listeners to learn more about this topic, as well as some other papers on nutrition support in the upcoming June 2022 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Joe. Thanks, Jen. Thank you, Jeanette.